Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome to Healing with Dr. George, the power of Chicano Latinx art. This is a podcast that explores the themes of self and community healing, whether as an artist, curator, collector, or admirer. I am your host, Dr. George Jesus Mesa, a Chicano clinical psychologist with a passion for promoting and preserving Chicano Latinx art. I'm working in conjunction with our partners at www.latinoarte.com, an online marketplace that showcases and promotes the work of Chicano Latinx artists throughout the United States. Our guests for the podcast will include celebrated artists, collectors, curators, and influencers who will share their experiences and perspectives on Chicano Latinx art as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Today's guest is Dr. Ruben Cordova. Dr. Cordova is a nationally recognized expert in the field of Chicano and Mexican art. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Brown University and PhD in the History of Art at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Cordova has taught and lectured at prestigious universities throughout the United States. His published work includes articles, books, and catalogs in multiple publications on various topics related to Chicano and Mexican art. Dr. Cordova has curated exhibitions for museums and public art exhibitions throughout the United States. He is currently a contributing writer for Glasswire magazine. Welcome, Dr. Ruben Cordova. Uh, the pleasure to have you here with us today. Uh, why don't we start uh, to talk a little bit about your personal history as an art historian? Okay. So... Growing up, I, I didn't really even know art historians existed. I grew up in Wyoming. Uh, my family's from northern New Mexico. And they're very much a part of that culture. Uh, I'd never been to a museum until I went to Brown University and went to the Rhode Island School of Design Museum. Uh, I was very interested in art. Uh, I always wondered what a real Van Gogh painting would look like. So I really wanted to see a Van Gogh growing up and, and never did till I went to college. Um, I guess I knew there were collectors and things like that, but I thought you had to be like an English Lord or Vincent Price in a movie or something like that to be involved with art. So I saw it as really uh, a kind of elitist phenomenon. And uh, I moved to New York after Brown. So I lived there from 1980 to 1987. And I went to museums all the time, galleries. And then I thought, gee, I, I guess I should try and find some work that relates to this because I spend all my time doing it. And then uh, 
it was very cheap to travel internationally, so I went to Europe many times and uh, spent just all my time looking at art. So eventually I uh, attended uh, UC Berkeley for graduate school beginning in 1987. And really, I guess Chicano art was the last art that I came into contact with because I'd already seen art from all over the world everywhere else. And I didn't really see it in New York. There were a few places, and I just happened to miss them. Uh, you know, if it wasn't the New York Times or the Village Voice, I didn't really know what was happening. So it was really when I went to California that I came most directly in contact with Chicano art, although... I had helped paint a mural of Che Guevara on the local swimming pool. I think that was in my junior year. And they didn't figure out who it was until uh, I'd already gone to college, and then they painted it over. So I guess uh, that might be my first contact, uh, working on the mural. And I did see uh, some other Chicano art here and there. But really, it was in California that I came into most direct contact with it, both in uh, the gallery spaces there and in traveling shows. Who were some of the first Chicano artists you were exposed to that made an impact on you? Well, I think Enrique Chagoya, uh, Rupert Garcia, uh, Yolanda Lopez. Well, I mean, there are people who studied... Uh, art history like art historians. So they had a lot to say and, and we had a lot to talk about. And you were working on your PhD at uh, Cal Berkeley at that time. That's correct. Um, how did your exposure to Chicano art influence your journey as an art historian in those early days? Well, I guess I really, you know, was thrust into the program and, you know, it's very demanding so I didn't really have a chance to look at Chicano art initially because I was working all the time. And then I was uh, working to make money as well. So it, it actually took uh, a few years before I um, really got to know a lot about Chicano art. And uh, what happened next? Well, let me think. I guess... Probably my most concentrated exposure to Latinx art came in traveling exhibitions, Hispanic art in the United States, which I saw in the late 1980s. Of course, the Chicano Art Resistance and Affirmation, the famous Cata show, which I saw in San Francisco, that would have been 1991. And by that time, I'd already learned, you know, a fair amount about Chicano art, but, you know, to have, a, you know, huge shows, and, and that one was really carefully thought out with panels all over the country to try and get some geographic diversity. Uh, so that was really a, an important thing. Um, as I said, I'd already traveled extensively, so I'd seen every other kind of art really before I had uh, a good exposure to Chicano art. And then um, I became a curator at the Mexican Museum in San Francisco. And so by 1997, I curated a big survey of Latin American art that also included uh, some Latinx artists among the around 60 artists, including Yolanda Lopez, Enrique Shangoya, Rupert Garcia, a graffiti artist known as Design. 
So I, I never had a class on Chicano art or Latin American art, but I did serve as a reader grader for visiting Professor Don Addis. And that was really the only class, you know, at any of the universities I attended within art history on, on Latin American art at all. Uh, so Dr. Cordova, what happened after you graduated from UC Berkeley? Well, I got a job at UT Pan American, which is in the valley near the Mexican border. And so I taught there for a year. And then the next year I got a, a job at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And so I moved to San Antonio in about 1999. And that's when I began my work on the Kunsafo Art Group. And I've made that really my main uh, focus for Chicano art. Interesting. So how, tell us about the origins of Chicano art in Texas. What, what do we know about the, the roots of Chicano art mm -hmm. in that? Okay, well, I can give you a very precise answer because I wrote about this in my book on, on, the, on Consafo. And so the, the fundamental question is, was there Chicano art before the Chicano movement? So maybe I'd like to say a little bit about the Chicano movement, or at least the beginning of it, and then that would provide a context for what some of the artists said, because then I interviewed uh, many, many times uh, the six founding members, and they have kind of differing opinions on what constitutes Chicano art, when it began. So maybe I could contrast the experience of California and Texas for the origins. Uh, in 1965, you had the UFW Great Boycott uh, in California. And in 1966, there was the dramatic march from Delano to Sacramento by Cesar Chavez. In 68, there was a 25-day fast uh, to affirm the commitment to nonviolence. And by 1970, you know, there were a lot of contracts that were signed with major growers. So that was the big triumph. Now, in Texas, uh, the situation was really different because basically all of the methods that were successful in California were illegal in, in Texas. You couldn't pick it. You couldn't have secondary boycotts. They were all illegal under Texas law. You did have, in 1966, a dramatic even a longer march, almost 500 miles from Starr County to Austin, which is the state capital. But then the, the workers were sprayed with insecticide. They were beaten, detained, arrested, threatened. Mexican workers were brought over the border bridge to be used as strike breakers. They were even illegally given green cards specifically to break the strike. So you couldn't really have the kind of success in Texas that you did in California because circumstances did not allow for it. And there was a kind of tendency to use violence against Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. So keeping them down was kind of like a state religion. And so in 1967, they initiated a class action suit, but it wasn't really finished until 1974. So that's when the Supreme Court ruled on it and deemed a number of Texas laws uh, unconstitutional. So that really kind of gives you in a nutshell the difference that the circumstances were so different uh, between Texas and California that you couldn't really win the way uh, Chavez did in California. So, but the brutality of the reaction against uh, the striking workers and the methods used 
uh, really angered a lot of people and that helped to ignite resentment and spark a movement. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. You know, there were a, a number of uh, major developments, but maybe that's enough to give a, a sense of what is different uh, in the circumstances between Texas and California. Now, the political climate was extremely hostile to Chicano art. The term Chicano was deeply threatening, like I mentioned, dominating Mexicans. That was a way of life in Texas. Those in power didn't want to change. Chicano artists were told they were not making art, they were making propaganda. Uh, many were told, well, you should paint blue bonnets. That's what art is. And they were, of course, excluded from exhibitions, from museums. One artist told me that he, when he wanted to publicize an exhibition, he called up the major newspaper in San Antonio. And as soon as he said the word Chicano, they hung up. So that was how the word was taken. It was anathema. It implied opposition to racism, to oppression, to the status quo. So to answer your question, who were, who were some of the early Chicano artists? Well, Consafa was co-founded in 1968 by six artists, and it was originally called El Grupo. All of them had attended technical high schools, so they'd received some training in graphic art. And women didn't have this background, so almost all of the early artists were men. And so I can start with, say, Chista Cantu, uh, he was one of the six founding members, and he had the most expansive conception of Chicano art. He believes it began in the prisons in the late 1950s. He called Jack Barber one of the most important early Chicano artists. He considers the drawings he made of his friends in the 1950s as early examples of Chicano art. And he also mentioned a mural that he painted in a restaurant of the god Pollock. And he says, well, that was Chicano art. He felt any art made in the barrio was Chicano, and he thought that other artists were making Chicano art in the 1960s. Uh, now, Jose Esquivel, who was also a co-founder, he doesn't think Barber's work had any Chicano content. Uh, another founding artist, Jesse Almazon, uh, believed the group created Chicano art, but only after they formed the group. The group, he often told me, it didn't exist before then. So he felt that uh, Chicano art was created after Quinsafo was founded, that it didn't exist before then. Now, another artist, Roberto Rios, also a founding member of the group, thought work done in the group only confirmed what he was already doing. He used an analogy, you're walking, you know you're walking, and then somebody puts a name on it. So he thought that, you know, 
Chicano art existed before the group. It just didn't have a name that was attached to it. Now, there was a big exhibition in November of 1968, the group's first exhibition. Felipe Reyes, who was the primary founder, said he conceived of the exhibition because the cowboy was a symbol of bigotry and oppression and needed to be redefined. So in his mind, it was a critical Chicano exhibition. Cantu thinks his works in that exhibition were critical. Esquivel thinks that the political element was not really that significant, and uh, Rios concurred with him. So uh, Rios thought that there was an emphasis on racism shortly after that, and the work became fully Chicano soon after that exhibition. So even among the, the group's founders, there's a certain amount of disagreement about what constitutes Chicano art and when it arose. But I think that, you know, six, 1968 would be uh, certainly a date you would look at as maybe one of the originatory dates for Chicano art in Texas. Um, how did that group of artists get momentum? How did they get going to help Chicano art evolve in the state of Texas? Well, um, I, I think the big factor to, to get them going was Felipe Reyes. He saw a television program called Hunger in America, and it was incredibly dramatic, and it, it was shot uh, at a former... Um, you know, cotton plantation. It was shot at an Indian reservation. It was also shot in San Antonio. And it was a time when they were having a, a world's fair and, and it, it showed the uh, gulf between uh, the Mexican-American or Chicano community and, and the rest of the city. And of course, uh, you know, the city was one of the most highly segregated in the United States, and there's still a lot of segregation in Texas. Um, and Felipe Reyes said that when he saw that, that he realized that everything done was by design, that it wasn't an accident, that, was, that, that racism was systematic, and he saw the consequences in a way that he never did before. And he said that was the main impetus for starting the group. Now, the group went through several reorganizations, and there were points when it kind of, uh, you know, nothing happened, they didn't meet, and there would be some political event that would draw them together. Uh, the next big one was um, a boycott of a banker who made a, a comment they thought was racist and that had practiced segregation in his own businesses, even though he called for voluntary uh, desegregation. Uh, generally in San Antonio. So there were, uh, the group was responding to, to uh, political stimuli. Initially the television program, then a boycott. Um, so various political events, I think, drove the group for the most part. Who were some of the significant women artists in Texas at that time in the early movement? Well, I don't know that they were significant women artists at the earliest point. Uh, Kathy Vargas uh, was one of the uh, later members of the Consafo group, so she's a very well-known photographer. So, as I said, I think I think the early artists, you know, the men were were in a program where they had 
uh, some training doing graphic art and the women were not. And also women were expected to, you know, run the household and be mothers. And, and I think that there was a very strong prejudice against women being artists or being taken seriously as artists. I think artists in, in uh, California also attest that, uh, you know, they were not taken seriously in classes. And they were supposed to be the girlfriends of the professors and they were supposed to marry and, and you know, were not, were not given the opportunities that were afforded to men. What was like the next step? Then, then where did Chicano art go from there in the state of Texas? Well, I, I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more limited to San Antonio because I don't really know what was happening in much of the rest of the state. There were a couple of very important artists uh, from El Paso. One was Mel Casas, and he got a teaching job at San Antonio College. And so he moved to San Antonio and began teaching. Now, he began making Chicano art a little bit later. I think the first work that has explicit Chicano content is Brownies of the Southwest from 1970. And I think in the early 70s, he had a number of works that in some way had Chicano content, UFW flags, one that has an imaginary portrait of Cesar Chavez, killed with a shotgun and kind of a curtain of blood coming down. Um, one that has uh, field workers. But his, his work is, is more elusive. And, you know, he, um, his main body of work uh, is deeply engaged with cinema, is, is actually even structured on a kind of cinematic screen image. And he has... Um, a, a kind of structure and and a use of um, imagery that that engages in visual puns, and then he has texts that accompany it that are verbal puns. So it's a, it's a very different kind of art. Whereas, say, Felipe Reyes, you know, he would do a lot of uh, UFW themed works, and I think. Uh, most of his his political works from the group period that um, have survived, at least in reproduction, uh, have uh, United Farm Worker themes. Another artist was the late Luis Jimenez, and uh, he was based in El Paso, and he also uh, had a home in New Mexico, and he moved between them. He also taught at Houston and would commute from New Mexico go to El Paso, fly to his job in Houston, fly back, drive back to New Mexico. So I guess he had a more complicated geographical situation than anyone. And uh, maybe his earliest work that you could term Chicano is is a sculpture called Man on Fire that he termed a spiritual self-portrait and it was influenced by many things, monks immolating themselves in, in protest of the Vietnam War. Um, Puerto Ricans throwing Molotov cocktails he witnessed in New York City. It also draws on Quatamac being burned by fire and the face is influenced by the chief Pontiac that was um, on his father's cars. So, um, you know, fairly shortly after 
1968, when I've discussed some of the Consafo founders, um, you have other other major artists who were who were doing work that you could call Chicano art. Uh, what were some other significant uh, events that uh, affected the evolution of Chicano art in Texas from that point forward? Okay, well. In 1967, there was the formation of the Mexican-American Youth Organization in San Antonio. That's the same year that Reyes Tijerina took over the Tierra Amarillo Courthouse in New Mexico. Uh, in 1968, the Brown Berets became a national organization, so they had groups in Texas and all over. Uh, Antonio Bernal painted the first Chicano mural that we know of in 1968 in Del Rey, California. In 1968, you had the student walkouts, and they took place both in Texas and California. So time, sometimes there were parallel events, you know, that you had the Brown Berets moving all over the walkouts. Also, the Mexican-American uh, Legal Defe Defense and Education Fund was founded in 1968. Um, so then you had the, the Plan Espiritual in 69 with Corky Gonzalez in Denver, Metra founded in Santa Barbara. I guess the next big thing in, in Texas would be 1970 when Jose Angel Gutierrez founded the Raza Unida Party in Crystal City. Uh, then in 1970, you had the Chicano Moratorium and, and that spread. And then in 1972, you had the first Raza Unida National Convention in El Paso. So I think that those are really the you know, the critical events. So if we take the, the UFW from 1960, starting in 1965, and, and then you go to the Rasa Unida party in 72. So that's a, a pretty big, a, a large number of things that happened in a very short span of time. So that, that kind of made the context for Chicano art. And, and there were a lot of artists that went in different directions from there. What about the development of murals? When did that start in Texas? That I'm not entirely certain, but I, th I think it, it came later than in California. There's actually one artist that claimed he painted the first Chicano mural, and he was a Consafo founding member. But then there are a lot of contradictions that I had individually from the artists. So I sat them all down in a restaurant and said, okay, what, what, what's the real story about this? And the other artist said, well, to begin with, it wasn't a mural. It was painted on a door. The date was wrong. So his date was you know, uh, later. And it was questionable whether it was Chicano. So I, I know I'd heard the claim that he'd painted the first Chicano mural. When uh, I first got my job at uh, San Antonio, I went to a, a talk in Austin, and I know a professor said that. So... Um, I myself don't know. I know that there were uh, a lot of murals in San Antonio much later. Uh, I know Alex Rubio had taught uh, a lot of artists, including uh, Vincent Valdez, and has done a lot to teach artists how to make really good murals. So there's a pretty lively... Uh, bunch of murals being made today. 
but I don't really know about the origins. I tend to think that it's uh, substantially later than a lot of the murals in California. Dr. Cordova, can you talk about the status of Chicano art in Texas today? Well, again, I would say that I don't know that much outside of San Antonio. I lived in Houston a couple of years. Um, I think there's a lot more going on in San Antonio than in, than in other cities. I think there's a great number of, of artists doing Chicano art, from emerging artists to some of the artists who first created Chicano art in Texas, including uh, a number of the founding members of Consafo that are still alive. I think it still has not found a proper place in mainstream museums for the most part, and they remain conservative. Uh, moreover, I think there's a lack of expertise to interpret the works and to explain its importance. Additionally, there are far fewer publishing opportunities in Texas than in California. Now, California's always dominated Chicano scholarship. And in California, they really lack expertise about Chicano art in Texas. That is, to the extent that they're interested in it at all. So I think on the one hand, uh, departments and studio spaces are phenomenally cheap in San Antonio compared to California or New York. And there's a great number of galleries, and it's very easy to exhibit in San Antonio and in many Texas cities. But the market is really underdeveloped. It's hard to make a living. When work sells, it's at very low prices, and there's virtually no secondary market. So, you know, people buy directly from the artist, and that's about it. And then a lot of it is at, um, you know, cultural spaces, uh, things like that. I don't think that there's, you know, uh, a well-developed professional gallery infrastructure. And people who work as artists, for the most part, they make their living as teachers or something else. Interesting. That's why I thought it would be uh, helpful to have a conversation with uh, an art historian from Texas to be able to shed light on the history of Chicano art in Texas, but also the contemporary scene um, who are, what are some of the significant uh, actions or activities that are going on now do you think that are going to be documented in future historical volumes about art in Texas? Okay, you're talking about recent phenomena or? or uh, contemporary, yeah, contemporary things that are going on in, in Texas right now that maybe 20 years from now people will be talking or talking about or looking at. Well, I think Vincent Valdez has found a great deal of success. So I think he's probably you know, the most talked about uh, Chicano artist, someone that, that is recognized outside of the Chicano community uh, and, and someone that museums are very receptive to and, and want to collect. I think an, another thing that, uh, that I've... Uh, been very happy to see is that there is uh, an emergence of, of a lot of younger women artists. As I mentioned, the, the older artists for the most part were men, and now there's uh, a lot of women who, who are painting really strong works. So I've been, been able to include a lot of these talented young women, younger women in, in uh, my exhibitions, and I've written about them. Uh, some of them are uh, Daniela Rojas, uh, Crystal Hortapuenta, Laura Varela, Mari Hernandez, Adriana Garcia, Lizette Chavez. Uh, 
And they're all doing very different types of work. But um, I think really broadening uh, the scope of, of Chicano art and, and taking it in new and exciting directions. Interesting. One of my uh, ideas would be to kind of have bridge shows in California where we would have shows specific to artists from Texas and artists mm -hmm. specific to New Mexico to be able to kind of shed light on the talent that's going on in areas outside of California. Because truthfully, I, tend, I think we tend to be very myopic. And we kind of, you know, LA art, LA collectors, and everyone else looks at LA artists only. San Francisco does the same thing, San Diego. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of maybe cross pollination that begins, that needs to begin to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that one of the interesting phenomenon is, is that Chicano art arose in response to aspects of the Chicano movement in many parts of the country simultaneously. So you had um, several communities in California, you had New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Texas. Denver. And, Denver. And, and, yeah, Denver. And a, and a lot of these artists didn't know about each other. And I think especially in Texas, you know, they didn't really, I, I think in California, at least a lot of the groups heard about each other. You know, if you were in Oakland or San Francisco or Sacramento, um, you know, you knew about each other, but in Texas, you really didn't know what was happening in the rest of the country because it wasn't that well publicized in in California, much less, you know, half a country away. Well, right. And, and now we have Chicano artists in Portland and Seattle and Indiana. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there are these splinter artists that are happening in Kansas and things like that. And so the, the challenge then mm -hmm. begins how we continue to prompt the development of these artists and their careers and to continue to support to support their work. But um, I wanted to tell you that is all the time that we have today. Thank uh, Dr. Cordova. Thank you so much for the fascinating information and insight into the development of Chicano art in Texas. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us today. Boy, you're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. Please continue to tune into our series as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx Art. Also, don't forget to visit the website www.latinoarte.com in order to view the beautiful array of Chicano Latinx art that is available to add to your own collection. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.